Jane's father hadn't come home in December. He sent a telegram saying that his business trip had to be extended unexpectedly. He had to miss Christmas. The letter that followed the telegram said he was sure Jane was too busy going to parties to care about his absence. Jane wasn't going to parties. That was the only rebellion she was capable of, to refuse to put on sparkling dresses, to refuse to make polite chatter, to refuse to mince across a dance floor. But in her battle of wills with Miss Milhouse, that also meant she wasn't allowed to go to the picket line, wasn't allowed to give any money to the strike fund, wasn't allowed to buy coats or food for Bella and Yetta. Jane had made an unpleasant discovery. She was a very rich girl, but she had no money. Money she could control, anyway, and wasn't that what really mattered? The $20 she'd crammed into Bella's hands as Miss Milhouse shoved her out the door had been the last of the birthday money Jane's father had given her when he thought she'd spend it on a new hat or a necklace or a ring. Jane had plenty of silks and furs. She ate oranges that came up by railroad from Florida, oysters from Cape Cod, caviar imported from Russia. But Miss Milhouse controlled Jane's clothing budget. The cook and the housekeeper ordered everything else, and her father went over every bill with a gimlet eye. As soon as Jane could manage to escape Miss Milhouse's attention, even for a minute, she sneaked down to the garage to talk to Mr. Corrigan. Please, if you could just take some food to those girl strikers, take some from the pantry. Cook will never miss it, Jane said. Mr. Corrigan had his head under the hood of the car. He was very slow about leaning back from the engine, looking over at Jane. Cook, he said, has counted every bag of flour, every carton of salt, every pound of potatoes. Aye, she'd miss it if we took so much as a dried pea. Jane had not bothered putting on a coat when she sneaked out of the house. She thought that might look suspicious. She shivered in the cold garage and wondered why it was fashionable to wear such a thin, gauzy dress in the wintertime. Was it just to show off the fact that Jane's father could afford a fine furnace strong enough to heat their entire house? Then buy some food for them, and I'll pay you back when my father gets home, Jane said. If you could buy Bella and Yetta each a coat, too. I know you probably don't know much about women's fashions, but I'm sure anything warm would be marvelous. Maybe your wife would be willing to help you. Mr. Corrigan took off his chauffeur's cap and ran grease-frimmed fingers through his thick hair. Miss Jane, he said, and Jane knew that she should scold him for being so familiar, but she didn't. Your father pays me $25 a week. I have seven children. I'm all for supporting the girl strikers, but I don't have the money to go buying any of them new coats, not when my own children are wearing last year's with the hems let down. And I'm not taking food out of my own children's mouths, just on the promise that you'll pay me back when your father gets home. Jane had not known that Mr. Corrigan had seven children. She didn't know that her father paid him only $25 a week. Why, she had hats that cost twice that amount. I would pay you back, Jane said. Mr. Corrigan ducked back under the hood of the car, attacking some part of the engine with a wrench. He twisted and turned. He grunted and his face turned red with the exertion. He lifted out some metal contraption that, for all Jane knew, might be the entire engine. The metal was covered with grease and grime, and it scared Jane, somehow, to see what filth and ugliness lay beneath the gleaming, polished exterior of her car. Mr. Corrigan looked over at Jane. "'I can't lose my job,' he said. 
I can't, not with seven children to support. Miss Milhouse says I'm not allowed to drive you any place now without her permission. But some night, if Miss Milhouse is sleeping and you're sure she's asleep and you want to go to one of those strike meetings, I'll take you. Jane saw that this was the best he could offer, that as far as he was concerned, it was a lot to offer. So that was how she got to go to the meeting at Carnegie Hall. But the rally was a big frustration. She couldn't really listen to any of the speakers because she was so busy looking around trying to make sure that no one who might know Miss Milhouse would see her and trying to see if Yetta and Bella were anywhere in the crowd. She did spot Yetta at the last moment and she felt such a ridiculous surge of hope. Maybe Yetta could tell her what to do to fight Miss Milhouse, how to survive without any money in her control. Wasn't that sort of like what Yetta was doing in the strike? Jane elbowed and edged and once actually kicked her way through the crowd, fighting her way over to Yetta. But Yetta only stood there with her face like a vault, closed and locked tight. How's the strike going? Jane said. Fine. And then Jane babbled on while the crowd swept Yetta away. Yetta moving forward, making history, changing the world, while Jane's life was so small that she'd had to put laudanum in Miss Milhouse's tea just to get out of the house. Do I want to help Yetta, or do I want her to help me? Jane wondered, standing alone in the swirling crowd. Either way, Jane had failed. Jane's father finally came home in February. Jane heard him at the door, and she rushed down the stairs immediately. She knew she had to get to him first before Miss Milhouse had a chance to poison his mind against her. Father, Jane cried and threw her arms around his shoulders. Eh, what's this? Father said, turning abruptly, the way he would if he thought someone was picking his pocket. Jane gave him a peck on the cheek, even though she couldn't remember ever kissing him before. He always kept her at such a distance with his cloud of cigar smoke and his gruffness and his grief. Surely it was mostly his grief over losing mother that made him so unapproachable. Yes, of course I want the luggage sent up to my room, father growled at the butler, ignoring Jane. Did everyone forget their jobs while I was away? Jane clutched at her father's arm. He shook her away. What are you doing? he asked. Why are you acting like a strumpet? Jane looked up at him and made a feeble attempt at batting her eyes. She'd seen other girls manipulate their fathers. Oh, Papa, please, it's just a pair of kid gloves. They're so darling, don't you agree? She knew she should start with the sweet talk, the declarations of how she'd missed him, how Christmas had been so empty without him. But now, faced with her own real, glaring, growling father, a hundred times more irritable than she'd remembered, everything she'd planned to say died on her tongue. Father frowned suspiciously. You want something, don't you? The, there's a strike, Jane stammered, of shirtwaist girls, girls who make shirtwaists, and the bosses are really mean to them, and I just want to help by giving them food and warm coats so they don't get too sick to walk the picket line. Huh, father said. If they go back to work, they can buy their own food and coats. But they can't afford it, don't you see, Jane said. They don't make enough money. Father lifted his cigar from his mouth, looked around, yelled, Mrs. O'Malley, did you move my ashtray? The housekeeper bustled in, apologizing. Sorry, sir, I'm so sorry. One of the maids was just cleaning it. Father stalked into his study, flicking the ash into the fireplace. He turned back to Jane. Miss Milhouse was right. You have fallen in with a dangerous socialist crowd. She was very wise to nip this in the bud, he said. 
Jane saw that she'd made a huge mistake. Miss Millhouse had obviously written to Father while he was away. Jane should have done that, too. She'd been counting entirely too much on the power of batted eyelashes, the effect of a daughter lovingly kissing her father's cheek. Father sat down at his desk as if he expected Jane to know that she'd been dismissed. She stood on the threshold of his study. She'd been trained practically since birth to know what she was supposed to do now, slink back to her room, fluff her hair and freshen her face, and come down to dinner to make polite conversation as if nothing had ever happened. She'd been trained to know her place just as surely as the servants had. Whether her father was away for a day or three months or a year, she was still supposed to jump back into proper position the minute he returned. Just as, someday, she'd be expected to play that role for a husband. She was supposed to be as easily controlled as an ashtray. Jane stood on the threshold and looked back and forth, foyer or study, white marble or dark wood, She felt like she was making a momentous decision. The other time she'd felt this way, deciding to bring Bella home, she'd been impulsive, like someone tossing a coin into the air, letting chance determine her fate. That decision could have gone either way. This time, Jane wanted to be sure she knew what she was doing. She swallowed hard and stepped forward into her father's study. I have not fallen in with a dangerous socialist crowd, she said. What they say is true. Those girls don't make enough money, and their bosses have paid off the police and other other thugs to beat them up. It isn't right. Father blew out a thin stream of smoke. Girls shouldn't be walking the picket line, he said. For that matter, they shouldn't be working in factories. What would you have them do to survive? Jane asked. Father was rifling through papers, lifting them from one stack into another. Their fathers or brothers or husbands should take care of them, he said without even looking up. What if they don't have fathers or brothers or husbands, Jane asked. She was thinking of that Italian girl, Bella, but something caught in her throat, a cry twisted. What if that was me? Father slammed his hand down on a stack of papers. For heaven's sake, Jane, this is ridiculous, he fumed. You would never be in a situation like those girls. They're not like you. I'm not sure what stories they've told you to get your sympathy, but I can assure you it's really none of your business, and probably mostly lies besides. They're very calculating, those Jews. They're not all Jewish, Jane said. They're Italian, Irish, immigrants, Father said, biting down on his cigar. His lip curled up in disgust. Some are Americans, Jane said, and anyhow, I've seen the police beating them. It's not just stories I've heard. I've seen it with my own eyes. The girls are doing nothing more than walk around and they get punched and kicked and they're girls. Father smashed his cigar down into the ashtray. Mrs. O'Malley slipped into his desk before tiptoeing back out. It's unfortunate that there are girls involved, Father said, but that's how it is in business. It's not some polite little game of croquet. Why, I've hired strike breakers myself. Strike breakers, Jane thought dizzily, the people beating up the strikers. In her mind, she could see fists hitting faces, heads jerking back, bodies crumbling to the ground. My own father would hire such cretins, arrange such attacks. When? she asked, through lips that felt strangely numb. Father waved his cigar at her impatiently. 
You were a baby, he said in a tone that implied she was a baby still, in terms of what she knew about the world. Did... did Mother know? What does it matter, Father said. It had to be done. If I'd let the union in, let the workers take control of my factory, I'd have been ruined. It's a battlefield out there, and only the strong can survive. You better be glad I hired Strike Baker's young lady, because otherwise we wouldn't have any of this. His gesture took in the dark wood paneling of his study, the marble floor of the foyer, the servants waiting outside the door. I can assure you, you wouldn't have such nice dresses. Jane looked down at her frothy dress, a sea of ruffles and frills. Then I don't want them, Jane said. She tore at the collar of her dress, but that was ridiculous. This dress was so complicated, it usually took both a maid and Miss Millhouse to get her in and out of it. And would she really want to be standing there in front of her father in her underthings? His money paid for my underthings, too. I don't want anything that your money buys, if that's how you got it, Jane yelled, hiring strike breakers, hurting people, probably starving them, too. Oh, please, Jane, father huffed. That's how the world works. Some people are rich and some are poor. And by God, if I can be on the rich side, that's where I'm going to stand. Would you have us all living in hovels, wearing sackcloth and ashes, eating gruel? That's what the socialists want. They'd pull everyone down to their level if they could. But Jane had already whirled away from him. Blindly, she darted out the study door, out the front door. Mr. Corrigan was standing in the driveway by the car, brushing snow from the windshield. Please, Jane shouted at him, sliding into the back seat. You have to take me to... Where could she go? Somewhere away from this house, away from her father. Mr. Corrigan glanced nervously back at the house, at the huge windows staring at them, where anyone could be watching. I'm sorry, miss, he said. I'm not allowed. Fine, Jane shouted. Be that way. Her father's tainted money had bought the car, too, and bought Mr. Corrigan's services. She slipped back out into the snow, slamming the car door behind her. She began stomping off down the snowy driveway. Wait, Mr. Corrigan called. You don't even have your coat. Jane shrugged and kept going. Then Mr. Corrigan chased after her and placed one of the lap blankets from the car around her shoulders. At least wear this. Jane knew she should shove it down in the snow because her father's money had bought the lap blanket just like everything else. But it was warm around her shoulders and it made her feel solidarity with Bella, who'd also huddled in a blanket in her moment of tragedy. Bella had lost her entire family and now Jane had to break away from her father because he was an evil, evil man. Jane tramped through the snow, past mansions and monstrous estates. Some of them were houses she'd always admired and secretly envied, but now when she glanced toward the twists of raw iron gates, she thought she saw the twisted faces of workers who'd toiled and starved just so the industrialists could have a fine gate. It was like seeing the grimy engine beneath the car's gleaming exterior. Suddenly, she could see how all the glitter and elegance, all the excess and opulence, had been built on the backs of workers like Bella and Yetta, workers calling out for justice. And workers like Mr. Corrigan trying to support seven children on $25 a week because that's all my father pays him. Jane walked all the way to Eleanor Kensington's house, blocks and blocks away. She pounded the knocker of the front door, and it wasn't until the butler came to the door and fixed her with a disdainful stare that she realized how disheveled she must look, how many rules of polite society she was breaking. It was late afternoon, maybe even early evening by now, 
the Kensington family would be preparing to sit down to their dinner. The time for social calls had ended hours ago. I must see Miss Kensington. Eleanor, Jane said. It's an emergency. And then she realized that Eleanor probably wasn't even there. She'd be back at Vassar. And Jane didn't have the train fare with her. She didn't have any money at all. But the butler was stepping aside, letting her in. Your card? he asked. Jane had forgotten about the whole rigmarole of presenting an engraved name card, of waiting to find out whether a friend was at home to receive guests. It all seemed so unbearably ridiculous that Jane didn't even feel embarrassed. I said this is an emergency. I didn't have time to bring my cards with me. Just tell Eleanor that Jane Wellington has to see her. The butler retreated. Jane watched the snow from her boots melt into the Kensington's Persian rug. What money bought that rug? Shipping interests? Are there strike breakers for shipping interests? Miraculously, the butler reappeared quickly and silently led Jane up to Eleanor's room. Eleanor was sitting there in a deep red ball gown while three maids fussed over her hair. You're lucky you caught me, Eleanor said. I just came back from Vassar for the Van Rensselaer's Valentine dance. I'm going back to school tomorrow morning and won't I be tired? Her eyes took in the gray blanket around Jane's shoulders, the slush-stained ring around the bottom of Jane's dress. I assume you've decided not to go to the ball? Jane had not been invited. Perhaps she would have been if she'd gone to all the Christmas social events, if she'd been nicer to Lily Aberfoyle all those months ago when they were having tea. I don't care about any stupid dance, Jane said savagely. This is about the shirtwaist strike. I found out that my own father has hired strike breakers before. He's just as bad as the shirtwaist bosses. Everything we have is tainted. Hmm, that's an interesting perspective, Eleanor said. She watched in her huge dressing table mirror as one of the maids pulled a ringlet down to its full length, each hair gleaming like gold. Interesting, Jane sputtered. It's appalling, horrifying, devastating. Eleanor looked at the maids hovering around her. Girls, Jane and I need some privacy, she said. You can come back and do my hair later. That way I can be fashionably late and make a big entrance. The maids froze around her as if they feared being fired if they didn't finish Eleanor's hair immediately. I said go, Eleanor commanded. The girls scattered. When they were gone, Jane demanded, Has your father ever hired strike breakers? Oh, probably, Eleanor said, toying with a ringlet. Dock workers are a pretty rough crowd. So are ship owners. But then, does your father get upset about your helping out with the shirtwaist strike? He thought it was sweet that I was concerned about the less fortunate girls. But he didn't really take much notice of it, Eleanor shrugged. He doesn't think girls and women matter much. But that's not what you think, Jane argued. You think women should vote. You think we should have rights. You think the shirtwaist girls deserve justice. You think strikebreakers are wrong. You think... Yes, yes, of course, Eleanor said impatiently. You know what I think. I don't agree with father about much of anything. Jane stared at Eleanor's elegant red ball gown, the perfect flow of silk. But you take his money, Jane said. You eat his food. You wear dresses bought with his money. You let him pay for you to go to Vassar. What's my choice, Eleanor said. Working in some factory as a shirtwaist girl? No, thank you. Jane narrowed her eyes. Sometimes, maybe, to get what you want. I bet you even let him think that you agree with him. Jane remembered the kiss she'd given her own father and blushed. You want me to apologize for being nice to my own father? Eleanor asked. 
She sprang to her feet in a flurry of rustling silk. I've done nothing wrong. I'm working for all sorts of worthy causes. Some people just use different strategies than others. It's like, here, feel this. She tapped her tiny waist. I beg your pardon. All right, feel your own waist, Eleanor said. Feel your corset under your dress, those rigid spines that won't let you breathe. You hate your corset, don't you? Who doesn't, Jane whispered. My point exactly, Eleanor said. If I ripped it off now, I'd split all the seams in my dress. My mother would faint. My father would have an apoplectic fit. It'd be quite the faux pas if I went to the ball tonight without my corset. Almost as bad as if I wore that blanket of yours. She grinned, trying to make a joke, but Jane didn't laugh. So, Jane said icily. So instead, I've been letting my corset out gradually. My friends and I took a vow at school. Now, every time I go to a dress fitting, I make sure the corset is a little looser, a little less confining. You're still wearing a corset, Jane said. But eventually I won't be, Eleanor said. Don't you see? It's a matter of doing things gradually, changing the world one corset string at a time. That's easy for you to say, Jane retorted. But you can't tell the shirtwaist girls, eventually you'll have fair wages. Eventually we'll stop having the strike breakers beat you up. Eventually maybe you'll be able to afford a coat. They're freezing now. They're starving now. Eleanor sighed. Jane, she said, go home. Tell your father you love him no matter what. Tell him you just feel sorry for the poor girls who don't have wonderful rich fathers like him. You play your cards right, I'm sure he'll come around. Jane felt betrayed. Eleanor was the one person she thought would understand. I walked all the way over here, Jane said. I thought I'll have my chauffeur take you home, Eleanor said briskly, as if all that mattered was Jane's transportation. Jane let herself be led out to the Kensington's car. What else could she do? She slumped in her seat. She couldn't face the thought of walking back into her own marble foyer, defeated, humbled, lost. Couldn't, couldn't, couldn't. She leaned forward. Excuse me, sir, she called out to the Kensington's chauffeur over the rumble of the motor. I gave you the wrong address. I actually need to go to another location. I'm not sure of the exact street number, but it's the Ash Building near Washington Square. She would go back to Triangle.